Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the GCI podcast. I'm your host, Anna Amar. A couple episodes ago, we covered business financial management, so it's only appropriate I interview a professor of its successor, applied financial management. And here today, I have Kate Waldock to fulfill that role. Kate Waldock is also the co-host of the popular podcast, Capital Isn't, which explores topics in econ and finance, ranging from the added value of private equity to investigating the myths of the gig economy. I'm so excited to have Kate Waldock here with me. We'll be talking about bankruptcy, which is her area of study, and we'll be talking about falling knives and how to avoid them. And finally, we'll get into Kate Waldock's experience at Lehman Brothers in 2008. There's lots to cover, lots to talk about. Let's get right into it. So let's first talk about your class. So I previously mentioned you were a professor of applied financial management, and you specifically for your class, you would model the curriculum around Oswath de Modern's teachings. So for those who don't know, Oswath de Modern is widely regarded as one of the most influential forces in valuation and just finance in general. And if it tells you anything, his nickname is the Dean of Valuation. So aside from his obviously outstanding reputation, what is it that made you model your class around his methodology? Well, to be completely honest, it was kind of out of function. I got my PhD at NYU Stern, and that's where he's a professor. And so when I was teaching my first class, we call it corporate finance at NYU, but it's broadly similar to the ideas taught in AFM. Um, he was there, and he was teaching that class, and I could like sit in on his lectures and ask him questions. And I think that his applied methods really speak to students. I've heard students say, like, when we're learning things, in this kind of vague theoretical sense, it's really hard to hold on to the knowledge, whereas the way that Professor Demodorin teaches things, like it, it sticks in your mind. And another reason I would say I teach his class is because he comes up with a great data sets that are actually useful for people in the industry. I've had students come back and say, like, various uh, data sets that he posts online for free, like I've used that in my evaluation analysis. I've used that for like presentations. And so I think that he provides great resources to students even after their courses are over. And I want people to be aware that they exist. And so I wanted to talk about the DCF portion of valuation as it's what is covered in AFM. And I wanted to present you with a criticism I've heard about DCF analysis. So some say that the DCF is an inaccurate method of valuation as there's just so much room for human error. Your DCF is only as accurate as your assumptions are, and with so many assumptions to hypothesize, there's just so much room for the result to be like a widely attractive stock price when that's not the case. So as a professor of AFM and the DCF, what's your take on this critique? Well, I think that first, a DCF is the only way to come up with a measure of value. Uh, the other methods are not valuation. This is something that Professor DeMotorin feels very strongly about, by the way. So looking at comparable transactions or looking at comparable companies, that's not valuation. It's what he calls pricing, right? You're just looking at where you can buy something or potentially buy something right now, but that's not the same thing as valuation. And you know, just using comps will never really give you a sense of fundamental value. Now, does it involve a lot of assumptions, sometimes unrealistic assumptions? Yeah, of course. I mean, we can't predict the future. And so if we're trying to predict the future, it's always going to be imperfect. But there are things that you can do to mitigate that. I think, you know, most of what I think people do on Wall Street 
is to come up with like a sensitivity analysis or a scenario analysis or we'll maybe have like a, a two by two or a three by three grid with like good high, good bad, high low, and then come up with various valuations given different inputs. A slightly more advanced way of doing that is to come up with a Monte Carlo simulation. So in your DCF, there's probably like, I don't know, maybe 60 assumptions that you're making. Pick the ones that you think are the most flawed or have the most room for error and come up with a probability distribution for them, right? Come up with what you think the lowest value can be, the highest value can be, and what you think that distribution looks like. Is it uh, kind of a uniform constant distribution? Is it a normal distribution? And then rerun your DCF over and over again, picking random values from those distributions. So you can actually come up with a better sense of what your NPV distribution might look like. And if the vast majority of the NPVs you come up with are positive, then that's great. Uh, and so I think there are ways that you can kind of stress test the issues with a DCF to make them as strong as possible. Um, but at the same time, like the better, the best way to do a DCF is always to understand the inputs into a DCF. Why are we using a DCF? What's the fundamental asset pricing model that underlies the DCF? It's the CAPM. What are the assumptions of the CAPM? Where do those break down? And what are my choices for where I can get all these inputs? the better you like dig into each of those specific issues and come up with something, you know, you did the best that you could. And I, like I said, I think that that's really the only way that you can do real valuation. Now, I mean, if I want to speak briefly to pricing, like comps essentially, if you're just a short-term investor, for example, or if you're, say a portfolio manager and you're being evaluated relative to everyone else, not in absolute terms, just in relative terms, then maybe pricing is the right method for you. But if you're the type of person who cares about fundamentals, who care, cares about value, then I think DCF is the best tool and the only tool available. So it seems that DCFs are the kind of thing that you can just keep on working on forever. Like the end point that you submit it to whomever you're submitting, it's it's not a point of completion, but a point of it's good enough. And deducing what a DCF is good enough seems to be just a very subjective yet monumental decision. And so I was wondering, what are your thoughts on when a DCF is considered good enough? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm not sure that there's an absolute answer to that because it really depends on a particular industry and it's, it's good enough when you build in all the elements of what can drive value. And so what those elements are really depend on what type of company you're looking at. Uh, I think, of course, that's going to be very intimidating when you're first doing it. Yeah, it's, it's disconcerting to be facing all those assumptions. It's disconcerting for me. I mean, even when I do like a case study that I've already looked at before, I've already like seen the answers, it still seems kind of stressful. Like how are they coming up with these assumptions? And so just be comfortable with that stress and you know, don't let it like freak you out. Just keep trying your best. And I think people do approach a level of comfort with it a couple of years into their job once they've been looking at the same sector for a while. It's reassuring that they're only more of an art than a science for now. As in, with practice, they become more of a science, it becomes more grounded, and, and you don't feel like you can't grasp anything. So thank you very much for that outlook. Um, 
But on another note, I, I'd like to move on to something com- completely different. Um, one of my favorite interview shows on YouTube is called Hot Ones. Um, a host and a celebrity, they eat incrementally hotter wings and the guest answers questions with each wing. It's really entertaining. I uh, recommend you check it out. But anyway, in that show, there's a question where the host pulls up an Instagram post and asks for more context. And since you're active on Twitter, I thought it would be fun to do the same and get some of your insights uh, into some of your tweets. So I have a couple of them lined up, the first being on investment advice. Uh, You had written that the only investment advice there is is don't try to catch a falling knife. So I was wondering, what is it about falling knives that make them something to be avoided, other other than the the fact that they make you lose money, of course. Yeah, I mean, I could probably come up with one or two other pieces of investment advice. But what I've noticed in my years of like being involved in finance, teaching, um, being involved with students, and also just like professionals in the finance world, is that one of the sexiest things for people is a stock price that's going down. It's just like some, there's something basic. It's like it's something in your lizard brain that makes people freak out when they see a stock price crashing. And they're like, oh my God, that is a great investment opportunity. And I, I see it all the time. Like I remember when I was an undergraduate, uh, research in motion, right? The people who made blackberries, which like you probably don't even know about because it doesn't exist anymore. At some point they had like a bad earnings call or something and their stock price fell by like 25% in one day. And everyone in the club that I was in, the investment club was like, we have to invest right now. And these are people who probably, like the people in your investment organization are like well-versed in DCF analysis and well-versed in ideas of like risk and how to project out cash flows. But still all of that information seems to disappear when people see stock price going down. And so I think people need to be aware of that fundamental human instinct. I have it too. Look, when like the stock market was crashing a few months ago, I was also like, I can't wait to get in there. And I was coming up with, I was trying to like come up with like technical analysis for when to get back in the market. And at some point I had to tell myself like, stop, (laughs) you're doing the thing that you're not supposed to do. And so I think it's because that instinct is so deep within us to want to jump back in when prices are low that we have to work especially hard to fight against it. And remember that there's, there's nothing technical. There's no knowledge in trying to just buy something that has gone down. In order to be a successful investor, you need information and you need to not only have information, but be better than everyone else, right? Take all the information that other people have and do a better job of synthesizing it. So just buying when something crashes is, is not an application of that. I mean, it's it's that analogy of you're in a store and you pass by this awful t-shirt, but it's 80% off and you're thinking to yourself, but it's 80% off. How could I miss out on such a great deal? And you just have to knock yourself back into reality that it's an awful t-shirt. But that that initial reaction is still there, that like, oh, it's a great deal. And it makes me wonder, what do you think is the best way to identify a falling knife from a great opportunity or a great deal? I wouldn't say that a falling knife is a security or a basket of securities per se. I would say that it's an investment strategy. And so, you know, maybe there are great reasons to purchase research in motion in like 2009. Maybe there's great reasons to buy an S&P 500 ETF in March of this year. Uh, 
but if you have those reasons and those reasons should be stemming from information that you have and a fundamental analysis that you did they shouldn't be stemming from just like a knee-jerk reaction and so basically the message is like don't invest based on knee-jerk reactions the second tweet i want to go over and this one's actually my favorite um a student had asked you if you would ever go work for a distressed debt hedge fund and given that your area of research is bankruptcy and that you're a finance professor i, I can see where the connection was made and your answer was, no, you wouldn't catch me dead in the finance industry. No, sir. And I feel like most people, when they hear an answer like that, they just write it off saying like, oh, well, they just don't know. But you're a finance professor, so you probably do know. And so I was wondering if you could let us in on your rationale behind your critique. Yeah, I mean, by the way, I should mention that my student called me out for being kind of a hypocrite, which, which I thought was bold, but also like well-deserved. Now, you know, why would I not work in the finance industry? It's a tough one. I don't think that it's an absolute, absolute no, to be honest. This is something I talk about with my friends a lot who are also finance professors will like be in a group chat and we'll throw out the hypothetical, like how much money do you need to make to to switch over to work for an investment bank or something. And we always like to like construct our numbers and everyone has a number. Uh, but to be honest, what you hear a lot at like information sessions um, or from people talking about their experience, if you like, you know, go to one of those lectures by someone in industry or like a hedge fund manager or whatever, they'll say that what is rewarding about their job and you know, what lets them sleep at night is that they're making markets efficient and they're helping allocate capital properly. And so that helps the entire economy, that helps the entire country, right? We're like allowing resources to go from people who have them to companies that need them. That's essentially what securities markets are about. And by being involved in finance, you're just making sure that that system runs properly. And I think that this is like a very attractive and reasonable answer for why someone would want to work in the finance industry. Sure, like you're making things more efficient. That's great. I just don't think that it's true. Like I think it's not true 95% of the time. There's a lot of other ways to make money and those ways are not as, let's say, benign. You can make money by being a monopolist. And so like that's one way to kind of extract value from the regular consumer that doesn't help the regular consumer. You can also make money by exploiting informational advantages and connections. I don't necessarily mean insider trading. I mean that like, in some sense, the finance world is just this network of people who know each other, some people who have informational advantages over others. And there are many legal ways in which you can exploit that superior information to make money, while not necessarily making markets more efficient. And the more competition there is in the finance industry, the more people rely on those other tactics. They're not just making markets more efficient. They're making money in other ways through the exploitation of advantages that actually make consumers and society worse off. All right. Uh, <laughs> I think some of our listeners just had an existential crisis. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, there's, you know, there's something that, uh, that you said earlier that really stood out to me about how you can influence the market and you can influence prices. And so I was wondering, what relationship does academia have to that influence? Is academia an observer or a mover in the world of finance? I think it's both. 
Um, you have some great academics. You have some not so great academics. And then you have a lot of great ac academics who are just like living in their own little bubble and aren't connected to actual financial markets. I think actually most academics live in a bubble and they like to think about things theoretically, but aren't necessarily very applied, which is fine. That's sort of neutral, right? There's some people who are naturally driven by like a conspiracy theory and they like to uncover like new forms of insider trading or you know, new forms of like option backdating where managers are making themselves better off. And some people are just driven by those questions. And I have a great appreciation for those people who are actually like producing, it's hard to publish those types of papers. It's hard to get them accepted by the industry. Uh, and so thank God that like these types of people exist. Now, I think not necessarily, you know, intentionally, but some people end up being captured by the finance industry, some professors. And so they'll form relationships. Maybe they've gotten, you know, some exclusive access to a certain company, or maybe they've just, uh, started their own consulting firm. A lot of finance professors do consulting in one way or another, and they get paid like $1,000 an hour for the advice that they give. And you can imagine that this is very lucrative. And you're just not gonna say something bad about a company that's paying you a thousand bucks an hour on the side. Like, it's just not gonna happen. Now, does that mean that you're a bad person and that you're like, you know, in the pocket of the industry? Probably not, but I do think that it, it just sort of naturally happens over the course of your career where you get sucked into this stuff and you become less and less willing to be critical of any particular company or you know the industry overall now there's also a data problem so one way to have a successful academic career is to access proprietary data like maybe trading data where like by the millisecond you have information about how prices are changing and it's not always easy to get this data. Sometimes you have to form a relationship with a CEO or like a, an exchange or something and like really fight hard to get that exclusive information. Now, companies are not going to give you exclusive information if you publish bad things about them. And so there's also kind of a bias in academic research, especially research that involves proprietary data to show the positive side of things, not the negative side of things. And so we should always be aware that that bias exists. Yeah, that's really interesting. I always had difficulty conceptualizing where academia fits in, um, and as in, in finance. But I definitely want to look up the new forms of insider trading papers. It's funny to imagine that there are some academics that are just Nancy Drew in a basement. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But yeah, so it's really cool. Like, where would you say you fall in with your research papers? That's a good question. You know, I study bankruptcy. And so it's certainly not like the focus of, it's not a focus of mine to try and be going after bad guys because people who study, for example, like managerial behavior, right? It's kind of natural for them to look at how managers are doing badly or managers are like extracting perks for themselves. Whereas in bankruptcy, a lot of it is like, oh, you know, what's the application of the law? Uh, to like a real world scenario or like how are how much are these claims being traded and so I think that I've been relatively neutral in terms of the research that I've done and how that reflects on the finance industry there are a couple times that I've tried to go after questions that were a little bit more conspiratorial like for example this is like pretty obscure but in a bankruptcy unsecured creditors, so creditors who don't have any like collateral 
against their claim. They usually form a special committee that has like extra rights relative to other creditors or equity holders because they're kind of in the middle of everybody. And so they're like the most incentivized for things to work out well. And what I've noticed is that unsecured creditors often object in court to auctions of assets in bankruptcy. And the way that they object is that they'll be like, oh, the managers are just trying to sell this on the cheap to one of their friends or to like someone in their network. And so they're trying to keep other buyers out of the auction. And so the auction is not going to be efficient. We're not gonna get the highest price that we possibly could for these assets because of their like network and their exclusive like collusive relationship. And so I kind of wanted to answer that question, but then I realized that the unsecured creditors themselves also have their own bias because if you are kind of out of the money, right? If your unsecured credit claim is not actually worth that much, then you have an option like payoff and options benefit from like a longer maturity and more volatility. And so maybe what they're doing is just trying to like maximize their option like payoff and they were making false accusations about the people that were organizing the auctions. And so at first, even though I like fully sided with the unsecured creditors, once I thought more about it, I was like, this is actually a pretty nuanced problem. And then trying to get to the bottom of what's going on is like pretty complicated. And so I guess I, you know, that would be one of the examples where I originally started out trying to go after a bad guy, but then realized that like the story is actually pretty complicated. So the paper you just described highlights the power dynamics of bankruptcy court, specifically from the unsecured creditors side. But bankruptcy court as a whole is it like the Wild West? Is it like every man for himself or is there some civility? I think the answer is not at all. But then I have a follow-in answer, which is, okay, maybe it is a little bit. <laughs> now, the simpler answer is not at all. And that's because the bankruptcy code was passed in 1978. That was 40 years ago, right? And so it's been in place with pretty much the same rules for 40 years. So even though I think in the early days of the new code, it was kind of the wild, wild west where like various participants were fighting with each other and like holding up the process and trying to just maximize the value of their own claims. The rules have been around for so long and we have pretty liquid markets in distressed securities, like distressed loans, distressed bonds, distressed equity. Like there's a lot of people, especially hedge funds who get into this space and are trying to figure out what the actual value of these securities are. And so I think that like markets are pretty liquid. We have sophisticated players. They understand the rules of the game. And so now most corporate bankruptcies are actually pretty orderly. Now where I will say things have changed a little bit more recently, and this is kind of, this is like pretty cutting edge stuff. Like not many people have looked into this yet or like picked up on this trend yet, but I do think it's an important trend you know, maybe leading up to coronavirus, which is just its own separate set of crazy. Uh, but around the time of the financial crisis, Delaware courts changed some laws that removed creditor protections from managerial opportunism. And so this is to say that uh, like private equity funds that owned companies started doing some pretty shady stuff and acting more aggressively towards creditors uh, as companies became distressed like, for example, taking something valuable that's not tangible, like intellectual property, and 
like putting it into a restricted subsidiary or a special purpose vehicle so that the creditors can't access that value and then borrowing more money against that new special purpose vehicle so that they're like adding more debt onto the capital structure. Like they started doing all of this stuff that was more brazen and aggressive and anti-creditor than they would have been able to get away with earlier. And so this has made the negotiation process harder kind of ex ante or before the bankruptcy relative to before these laws were passed or like easing. That's insane. But I mean, you have to kind of admire the the wit of it all, the evil genius side of things. Yeah, but I mean, see, that's what I mean is that I think that like the finance world has gotten so competitive that people have had to refer to evil genius tactics to make money. Now, some people derive a lot of value from knowing that they're evil geniuses and can make a lot of money. And so for them, I think like finance is a great career option. If it makes you happy, then do it. But I think there are also a lot of people who might be five years into their career and realize that like all they've been doing is kind of this like evil shifting of assets. And they didn't really mean for that to be the case. Um, And so again, it's just like a word of caution to understand that if you're creating value, like, or at least if you're, if you're making money, where is that money fundamentally coming from? I know we went on this, uh, this bankruptcy tangent, uh, which makes sense because that's your area of research. But I wanted to go to the point where it all started. Uh, you worked at Lehman Brothers in 2008. Definitely a very interesting time at a very interesting company. Um, I was wondering if you'd like to let us in on your experiences there. And uh, is that what sparked your interest in bankruptcy? Uh, so I was a junior in college when I got my summer internship offer at Lehman Brothers. And I was on the sales and trading floor, right? That was like the program, the internship program that I was going to be part of. And the desk that I was assigned to was the government bond desk. So they traded everything, like all the treasuries basically and like tips. Is that what made me interested in bankruptcy? Kind of yes, but mostly no. I would say maybe like shadow banking was my original interest and not necessarily bankruptcy, but it's hard to get that data. And so I had actually done an internship like early on in my PhD with the Office of Financial Research trying to get some data on shadow banking that I could use to write my dissertation. And they like, you know, it had become complicated and they couldn't share anything with me. And so like getting a good data set is a good part of uh, your PhD. So at that point, I was a little frustrated and worried about my research prospects. And so I started talking to some of my friends. I asked my friends, what are some of the interesting questions in the finance world right now? And I had a couple of friends who worked at a distressed debt hedge fund. And they were like, we print money. Like, we make so much money. And we don't even know why. It's impossible for us to lose money. And I was like, hmm. Whenever someone says that it's impossible for them to lose money, like there's got to be something interesting there. And so I started getting interested in bankruptcy. I applied for all this data and like got a ton of data, basically like $5 million worth of data from uh, the government for free. And so there I had a data set that I could start working with and dig into. And that's like kind of functionally what got me into bankruptcy research. But going back to the Lehman Brothers, um, It was an interesting experience there. I mean, that's certainly kind of what tipped the scales for me to not work in the finance industry uh, and think about a career in academia. There's not a whole lot that you can do as an intern in sales and trading. It's not particularly intellectual. And it was especially not intellectual in 2008 when Lehman stock was like 
crashing in value and everyone was freaking out. I think like my managing director at some point ripped the phone out of the wall and like threw it against another wall. And it was just like kind of chaotic. And so no one was interested in like teaching the summer intern. And so I kind of just sat there twiddling my thumbs. And so that first was just not a great experience. But one thing that really bothered me about my time there is that the way that everyone traded on the government bonds desk was that they had a graph and they were basically like selling, they were like shorting the data points that were too high and selling the ones that were, or, and buying the ones that were too low. And it was just like, it seemed very unintellectual. And so what this graph was, was a yield curve, right? So on the x-axis is some measure of maturity. So you got like the one month bond bill and the two month bill and then the one year and then a five year bond, 10 year bond, 30 year bond. And then everything that was kind of like in between. And so it's just like a, a nice curve. And then on the y-axis was value. And I like didn't know what value meant. And so I'd ask them like, oh, what is value? And they were like, oh, it comes from a proprietary algorithm. And I was like, what, what, is, what proprietary algorithm? Like you guys are the ones on the trading desk. Surely you must know the algorithm. And they were like, no, there's like some genius quant guy uh, who came up with the algorithm. We're not allowed to see it. He basically just lives on a boat now. And I was like, <laughs> so you just trust this algorithm that you have never seen, that you don't understand. And you base all of your trades, which are either buy or sell, uh, based on where these like little numbers are jiggling around over the point, like over the course of the day, and they were like, "Yeah, it's a really good algorithm. It makes us money," and that's. I mean, they were a successful desk leading into the crisis, but I can't. I couldn't imagine spending my entire career just looking at little points jiggle around and buying and selling based on like whether they were high or low and an algorithm that like nobody understood. And so at that point, I was like, "This is ridiculous. I need to go and do something where I actually like." try and learn and get a sense of what drives value or you know what drives markets and at that point i like talked to the undergraduate program advisor and he was like well you know you could think about a phd um but that experience i you know it like sealed the coffin for me that i couldn't just spend like 30 years of my life looking at points that i didn't understand yeah i mean no no wonder you didn't want to work in the finance industry I mean, ripping a phone off a wall. I mean, I guess. I guess the movies aren't too far off. Yeah, it was a little like Wolf of Wall Street-esque, except like way less quaaludes and a lot more anger. Oh my God. That definitely needs to be on a mug. <laughs> but, so moving away from that experience and into more of your comfort zone, um, before we wrap up, I wanted to have a bit of a conversation on bankruptcy in the news specifically the Hertz stock. So for those who don't know, Hertz, the car rental company, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and usually a company's stock price tanks after it declares bankruptcy. But in this particular case, Hertz's stock price went up. And I was wondering, what happened? What, what caused that? Well, it's always impossible to know exactly why stock price is going up, but I think in this case, it was somewhat clear which is that a bunch of retail investors got involved in a game of hot potato, essentially. Uh, now, just to back up a step, like what is a retail investor? There's essentially two different types of investors, retail and institutional. Institutional can be like anybody. It could be a pension fund or a hedge fund or an asset manager, like basically a, someone with large amounts of capital behind them and 
some level of sophistication. Whereas retail investors are people who are basically involved in, in trading for their own wealth. Uh, now, some of these are day traders. Some of these are like wealthier individuals, but some of them are just like people messing around on Robinhood. And it seemed like it was probably the less sophisticated end of the spectrum who was really driving uh, the bump and hurt stock after it went bankrupt. Uh, and the story there is just that, you know, it comes back down to pricing versus value. Something can be mispriced for a long time. It might have a value of zero, but that doesn't mean that the price is zero. Price is essentially just whatever you, you can convince someone else that the price is. And so I think this is a combination of like pricing versus value as well as catching the falling knife. A lot of Robinhood traders saw Hertz stock crash and they were like, oh my gosh, this is a great opportunity. Hertz is a huge company. I've heard of it. I use Hertz cars. The stock has to go back up at some point. Let's buy when it's like, you know, 50 cents on the dollar. Now, that's not a wise decision because most equity ends up being worthless over the course of a bankruptcy. Even if the company ends up operating after the bankruptcy, most of the equity, most of the time the equity is wiped out. And I don't think that many of the investors, the retail investors who were trading the stock when it was going up after the bankruptcy announced really understood the dynamics of that. I think that they were just pricing, which is to say, you know, if, if I can sell this for some, if I can sell this to someone for $2 and buy it $1, doesn't matter if the value is $0. All that matters is that I can sell it to someone at $2 later on. And so they were just basically like gambling that other retail investors would also be trying to catch the falling knife down the road. And some of them were successful, right? Some of them made a lot of money, but some of them lost a lot of money. Uh, in general, this is just a terrible idea. And I like, if here's my second piece of investment advice, like never buy equity of a bankrupt company. Just like, just don't even, don't do it. Don't even think about it. Just stay out. So does that apply to a successfully restructured company as well? No, I mean, during bankruptcy, you should never purchase the equity of a company that's going through the restructuring process. Uh, because I, I don't think many retail investors understand that even if a company is publicly traded before bankruptcy and during bankruptcy, and then after bankruptcy, it's a different stock most of the time. Usually like the old stock is ripped up and made worthless. And then there's a new stock that's issued. And the people who held the old stock don't necessarily get any of the new stock. And so you might see a company like trading before and after and think, oh, it's a good idea to invest in this company. But you're kind of missing that, you're missing that fundamental point, which is that everyone was there beforehand. They don't get anything. Uh, and so once a company is reorganized, if the reorganization process works, it doesn't always work. But if the court is successful in kind of bringing leverage down to a manageable level and restructuring and keeping alive the valuable sources uh, or operations within that company, then after a couple of years of like understanding the new performance of the company, if it's doing well, then sure. Yeah, if you like do your fundamental analysis and think that it's a good stock to buy, then sure. Um, but never buy something while it's going through the bankruptcy process. So now that we're coming to the end of our interview, it's time for the one tradition of the podcast that I hold near and dear, and that's asking for unconventional advice. And I figured, given that you're an academic, you might have some advice for all the students out there. Um, 
My advice. I don't think that this is unconventional. You probably ask for unconventional advice and then get like very conventional advice. And so if that happens, this is probably gonna be one of those uh, instances. Having been an academic slash student my entire life, but I didn't really figure out my schedule until I was out of college. And so what I've realized about myself is that like I'm a night person and it's kind of annoying because you know, I'll wake up late and then not really be in the zone to do work in the morning and then I'll have lunch and then I'll feel like, oh my God, I only have like five or six hours in my day to do work and then get stressed that I have to like cram it in and feel like I'm not doing enough work. So what works for me, and this is a schedule that I didn't really arrive upon until I was like a PhD student towards the end of my PhD, which is that if you know that you can't really start real work until like 1230 or one, then that means that if you want to get a really full day of work in, you have to work through dinner. Like if I interrupted my schedule for dinner, then I would start reading or I would like start watching a TV show and then not go back to work. And so my biggest thing for efficiency was that if I'm going to start working in the afternoon, I have to work through dinner, like not take a break and then stop working at nine so that that way I can get in like a whole day of work. No, it's actually really nice to hear that there are academics that are night people because there's this sort of stigma around it. Like, you can only be productive in the morning. Yeah, early bird catches the worm and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, so on behalf of night people, thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Um, Good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs>